Hello, Faculty Factory listeners. Today's podcast does have some technical difficulties that were encountered during the recording. Just to make sure nothing is lost in today's episode, we wanted to make sure that the full transcription of today's episode is available. We have provided a link to it in the description of the podcast so you can read along while you listen to today's episode. Thank you so much. Well, hello, everybody out there in faculty world. This is Kim Skorupski with the Faculty Factory Podcast, and I'm especially pleased to welcome today to the podcast the person who sponsored the Faculty Factory Podcast, my boss, Dr. Janice Clements. Hi, Janice. Good morning, Kim. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to get to talk to you about some really important topics. Everybody listening, Dr. Janice Clements is a professor of molecular and comparative pathobiology here at Johns Hopkins. And more importantly, to me anyway, she is the Mary Wallace Stanton Professor of Faculty Affairs, our Vice Dean for Faculty. And Dr. Clements started the Office of Faculty 21 plus years ago and started off very, well, actually with nothing, right, Janice? I think you had an administrative assistant and that was it. I had half of an administrator. <laughs> <laughs> um, those half people, they're such an interesting um, situation with half people, but you're right. And then she built the Office of Faculty Development under that, the Office of Women in Science and Medicine, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, Office of Part-Time Faculty. So her field has grown just amazing over the past eight years since I've been with you, but over 21 years, um, here we are today serving 3,000 full-time faculty, 1,000 part-time faculty, and she's really built a wonderful legacy in history. And I, and uh, Dr. Clements and I were talking about wanting to address some important issues for faculty that even start, like, say, let's take it, like, beginning to end. Say, pretend um, you're not only here at Hopkins, but you're anywhere else in academic medicine. And we're going to talk, she'll briefly talk to you about why a faculty orientation is important to you because some of you may be thinking, "Why? Let's just skip ahead and get ro- get rolling here." But why is faculty orientation important? And then we're going to go through a couple other things that she wants you to be aware of, and we think are important for faculty. So, Janice, um, let's talk. Why why is faculty orientation important? What's the value of it? Our faculty come from two sources. They come from from being postdocs and being doing research and from uh, their uh, clinical and their residency program and they're learners. And they have to make the transition from learners and people who depend on others to being a faculty member who now people depend on you. And that is actually psychologically a different, difficult transition. And so that's why faculty orientation is really focused on that. It's focused on telling the faculty, you are now faculty. You are the people that direct other people. People look up to you and you have to realize that you have to change the concept of who you are. You have to maintain some of the things that you had as a trainee, Those the mentors you had, you need to stay in touch with them. They can be your le- mentors for life, but then you have to find new mentors that will guide you through the faculty process of being a junior faculty, getting established in your area of expertise, developing your both your scholarship 
and your really your your presence in the faculty and introducing you to important people. And so in terms of mentors, you, you're going to need a variety of mentors, unlike when you were a trainee, where you had that one mentor that really helped you along. Now you need a cadre of mentors that will do the things you need to do as a faculty member. I like how you uh, position thinking about orientation as partly a psychological shift, because I've always thought that, you know, orientation is about getting the nuts and bolts, the resources, the policies, the programs, the regulations. But I think it is important, as you point out, that it's a shift in thinking. Right. And so to facilitate that shift, we have the leaders there. So uh, Paul Rothman, the dean, comes and welcomes the faculty and you get to know him. You see his face. He's there with you. He asks questions. We also have the president of the the Johns Hopkins Health System. And he is very engaged in, Kevin Sowers is very engaged in people and, and our faculty. And the third person who's very important is Redonda Miller, who is uh, the president, the first woman president of the Johns Hopkins Hospital. And she comes uh, to not only tell you about her role, but something about her journey too, because she started at Hopkins as a medical student and and worked her way to being the president of of Johns Hopkins Hospital. So this gives you insight into who your leaders are, where they came from, and who you might want to model yourself after. Right, right. I like the not only the shift of thinking of, oh, wow, I've made it. I am a faculty member. I'm no longer a trainee. I have to wrap my head around the fact that I've reached that the goal that I was always striving to attain. And I want to now know the landscape, who are the leaders in the hospital, in the system, in my institution, and also learning the culture of how we behave. You know, the culture is just a blueprint for living. So how is this culture different from another culture? Because we learn in academic medicine, probably everywhere, that you've seen one academic medical center, you've seen one academic medical center, meaning that we're all so unique, so different. So that orientation is an opportunity to understand the culture. How do we do things around here? Could you also just make a little brief notation or a comment about Maybe, you know, we're talking about trainees who are becoming faculty members for the first time ever. What about faculty members who are, they're already a faculty member at XYZ University, and now they're going to another university for a leadership role, or they're just, they've been recruited away or looking for new opportunities. So they've already been a faculty member. Why would they want to bother, again, about a faculty orientation if they think, well, I'm not a newbie. I've been around the block a few times. Well, because the culture at Hopkins is different and our rules are different. We're very faculty focused. So what they should know is that there is the gold book, which actually governs faculty promotions and, and faculty faculty reviews. And it is actually a very powerful, it, it's sort of a guidance, but also it protects the faculty. And so you wouldn't necessarily know about the gold book. You would probably get a copy of it or get a PDF of it, but you wouldn't understand that this guides your promotion. It guides how you should be treated, your uh, your appointment and your review process and the things that need to be done. So it's very important to understand the new culture at Johns Hopkins. It's a protective culture for, for faculty. 
Right. One of the things I've built during my time in the Office of Faculty are things that that protect the faculty and uh, help them to succeed. One of the things we've worked on for a long time is a salary equity. We started that in 2004. And so every year we, we look at everybody's salary and we send the results to your chairman and they, we say to them, these people are out of equity, please deal with it. In the last few years, we've actually developed very clear faculty compensation plans. And so that makes it even easier. You know your compensation plan, you know where you are, and you can look at the report and gauge the equity of your salary. And so these are the sorts of things we've put in place at Hopkins that are very different from other institutions. Right. I love how when I first came here that you talked about that gold book being the good faith framework and the, right. that it goes both ways, that it's not a, a hammer that you're hitting faculty with, but rather it's this it's this good faith agreement that we are going to protect you. And, and uh, we put in place these mechanisms to support and grow and develop and protect you. And these are the expectations so everyone, it's everything's clear, transparent, and we're all accountable to these expectations. We have the silver book that tells you the how to do it, a blue book for part-timers, but I love that you created all those uh, documents. Right. So the gold book is a contract. It just describes the faculty contract. And you should be aware that you do have a contract and be clear about what that is every year. We don't have tenure at Hopkins, but at full professor, we do have contract to retirement. So that is essentially tenure. Right. So this, so you've spelled out to me, I mean, if you're a new trainee who's just newly minted faculty person, even a mid-career faculty person who's made the change, orientation is vital because you not only get a sense of the leaders, your expectations, but a culture and how things happen. So you cannot... We can't rest on the assumption that this institution operates the same way the other institution where I was used to work, or, or we can't assume that it works the same way as it was when I was a trainee. So I think you've demonstrated the value of an orientation, not only here at Hopkins, but any other institution. That's a really important point to like stop a moment and take a bead and take a breath on how right. the institution works. The other thing is that we, we do really showcase what the uh, opportunities are in the Office of Faculty Development and building mentoring teams, uh, mentoring accountability groups, writing accountability groups called WAS, all the opportunities that as a faculty member, it will make your life uh, and your career more successful by having that information, that connection to other people, help you focus on your career in a way that is precisely for your career. Something like precision faculty development. Yes, I love it. I love it. And that's what the fun thing that I get to do. So, yes, I, I love that we are highlighted in the orientation. Janice, could you um, segue now into, let's talk about annual reviews. That's another thing that in my early career, I always kind of rolled my eyes at like, Kim, you know, Skorupski, your annual review is due. Please complete the attached form and blah, blah, blah. And I said, Ugh. when I honestly sit down and look at it, it is a good time for me to say, gosh, last year I said I was going to do one, two, three, and I actually did one, two, three, four, five, or I didn't do three. Why did I say I was going to do three? 
Now I want to do six and seven. So it is actually a good moment for me, even though I resent it and it seems like work, I realize that, no, this is good to look back and take pride in what I have accomplished to set realistic goals and get better about calibrating my time and effort and really kind of having a a real conversation with my director about shared expectations. Where am I going? What am I challenged by? What do I need? What resources do I need? And I'm thinking now after, you know, COVID, it's more important than ever. So can you talk to us about how do you prepare for an annual review? Why it's important? You know, what do you suggest to faculty about that annual review process? The annual review process is mandated by the gold book. And why is that important? We do not want you as a faculty member to get lost. And this is essentially uh, a time, a very special time that you sit down for an hour or so with your department director and you and he or she discuss what you've done, what you plan to do. It's really very valuable. And how do you prepare for it? Well, so my my recommendation is not to wait until a year to to look at your CV, to think about your goals. I would say every three months, put on your calendar two hours to think about where I'm going. It sounds like goofy and like, oh, I know where I'm going. Unless you are thoughtful and deliberate about it, put it on your calendar, sit down, and think about what you've done, and then set your goals. And then by the time the the end of the year comes, you've got all those intermediate uh, meetings with yourself. You've got the goals that you've done, and you'll be really prepared for it. It's the time to ask for things you need, ask about leadership roles. I love that you talk about the the thinking and spending time on yourself, and it's reminding me that Dr. Rachel Levine, our uh, Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Educational Development, always says when we co-present, she says, oh, every week I schedule time for deep thinking. And then I remember the first time she said that, I said, well, what do you do? And she said (laughs) in her deadpan manner, I think. And I I love it. And it just, it seems like, like you said at first, like that's, I'm too busy to think. Oh, for crying out loud, I mean, if we can't think, that's the nature of our life is what goes on between our ears. We need to schedule that time. It's like charging our batteries. I mean, we're academics so that we we live the life of the mind. And when we're so busy being mechanical and robots and rushing around, we're not engaging that thing that we love to do, which is to think. You're investing in yourself. And so we have to, just like the the whole example in the airplane, when the oxygen drops, you take care of yourself first. If we don't take care of ourselves, we won't be able to take care of our labs and our patients and our colleagues and our family members. So that investment in ourselves to think and prepare and update your CV as things happen. I always, you know, there's nothing worse than waiting a year and saying, now, where did I give that talk? What was the name of it? What were the dates? I mean, as soon as I get something, I update my CV. So that just avoids stress later on when I'm trying to do it on an annual basis. Janice, can you just speak before we move to the next topic about sometimes, you know, I hear from faculty who, when we advise them, you know, how to be proactive and to take charge of the annual review, they say, well, I think I'm going to take charge of it. And I have this plan of what I want to talk about. But then when I get to be get with my department director, um, she goes right to my RVUs and my productivity and 
And it's all about, you know, the bottom line. And I kind of feel like it may be hijacked a bit. Can you give some inside advice or some recommendations on how to own that process when you get in the meeting? You have to listen. And then you have to say, now I would like to talk about things that the academic things. I have been very productive. I've done these things. Now I need to talk about the other thing that I need from you. Because what he, what your chair was asking for, she or he, was what you were doing for them and for the department. But you need to have that time to uh, get input for you. So you have to somehow be forceful enough to uh, say that. That's right. And the best way to do that, if, if we don't feel courageous, is to practice that. So we talk in our leadership programs about rehearsing that. Nothing makes you feel more confident than rehearsing. You talk to any athlete or musician or artist, just practicing, practicing. And then before you know it, you get to that meeting, you're like, oh, I've been here before. I've, I've rehearsed this so many times. I can almost you know, do it in my sleep. So you just we get more courageous when we get more comfortable and we get comfortable when we practice things. The other thing is, too, is your mentor. Yeah. Don't, don't forget, forget the, your mentor. mentor. When, when you're doing an annual review, you might want to practice it on your mentor. And then you can go through what you're going to ask for. And they can actually give you good guidance. Perhaps you're, being, you're not being asking enough. You're not being reflective enough. You're not talking enough about how much you've done and where you want to go. Perfect. Perfect. And Dr. Clements, I'm, we're on the heels of COVID. So, you know, this is probably the next year or two. We don't want to have any institutional amnesia. Good practice for us as faculty members to get into that rhythm of saying, well, during COVID, this is where I pivoted. This is I you know, totally had to transition here. As you know, this didn't happen. This did happen. We doubled down efforts over here. We had to do this or that. So, uh, you know, reminding, having a little bit of mercy and grace to recognize where we all, everything kind of shifted and changed, but then having a plan for what's going forward. So did you want to say anything about the, the COVID and the, the Herculean efforts of our faculty and how um, we can remember to reflect back and not forget those sacrifices and the changes? I mean, some people had negative effects and I've talked to some faculty members, you know, bless their hearts, who said, oh my gosh, I've been crazy productive. I've never written more because My lab was shut down. And so I had to be at home and I'm writing papers. So you want to speak a little bit about um, the the pandemic effects? Yeah, well, the pandemic had very uneven, as you pointed out, consequences for faculty. So our clinical faculty that were hands-on medicine, pediatrics, they really were doing the uh, heavy lifting during COVID. And they are very worn out. Right. Uh, on the other hand, our surgical faculty were were blocked out of doing surgery, and so they had the frustration and they had the feeling of not being able to do the things they normally do. And then the the research faculty were closed out of their labs. Now, some people could be productive. But people with small children at home, everyone had a different experience. And hopefully we've all learned more about ourselves and how we uh, adapt to change, because that's what we've all had to do. Yeah. So this is another reminder to faculty listening. Don't be um, so brave at your annual reviews and, and don't and 
for example, like not talk about these things. I guess what I'm trying to, to emphasize is what Dr. Clement said is that annual review and regular meetings with your mentors should be at least acknowledge these impacts, positive or negative. Yeah, they'll, they'll have longstanding effects. So we don't want to ignore them or forget them. And so adjust and, and just keep that on our the radar. So I think you've said that really a lot better than I just did. But now, now what is this, the idea of reappointment reviews? Can you describe for some people who be listening to this who aren't from Hopkins and certainly those of us in Hopkins, what is a reappointment review? Because I know some faculty members hear that and they get a little nervous. Like, am I in trouble? Why am I getting reappointed? What does that mean? Okay, okay so, so in the, the goal book, if you are at the rank of yeah, assistant professor, professor or associate professor for seven years, you uh, are um, you. Your department has to prepare a um, a plan and work it out with you. And they send it to the reappointment review committee. This is a committee of your peers. Senior people, but your peers that look at you in a in a very uh, a constructive way to say, where is this person? Is the department director do, doing the right things? Uh, should this person be put up for promotion? Does this person need more uh, more resources to to excel? So this is really an opportunity to get outside your department advice. You get the, uh, the commentary from the reappointment review committee that your uh, department director gets. So you, you see that, and then you sit down with your department director and discuss it and make a plan from that. So, so the, the point of the reappointment review, again, is not um, some kind of um, you're, you're in trouble or it's... No, no, no. It's really, uh, it's really for your development. Right. Yeah. It's protecting faculty members who might, back in the olden days before you instituted this policy, they may have languished as an assistant professor or an associate professor for 10, 12, 20 years. And while, while some people may be fine and they don't want to be promoted or they are they are not driven by or expect to be promoted or want to be for by virtue of whatever it is they do. Um, there are some people who have in the past historically fallen through the cracks and they've gone unnoticed and they just go about their business and they're not really being developed. So this policy that you put in place was to protect and develop and lift up and move along and elevate and retain. So it's a good thing when you get a reappointment review to say, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Are you okay? What's the plan? Uh, let's reassess. Uh, let's kind of marshal our efforts to um, help you get and achieve your next goal. And many times the, the feedback from the reappointment review committee is this person is ready for promotion and or this person would be ready for promotion with these next steps. Right. So you get very directed um, advice. And so it's it's really very good. And the, and the uh, chair is really obligated to uh, to work with you on those recommendations. That's right. Well, this, this is great. We've talked about faculty orientation. We've talked about a couple of things that happen as a matter of course, annual reviews and reappointment reviews. Now we're going to switch a little bit on, talk about a couple more topics that we hear a lot from um, faculty members who are especially newbies starting out, how to build a lab. 
So uh, a lot of faculty members come here. They're, again, as uh, Dr. Clement said, they're coming from a training environment and they have had the uh, good fortune of being in wonderful productive labs, which is how they got to Hopkins or wherever you're listening uh, around the world. But how, Janice, you've been in a, a basic science lab and you've been NIH funded your entire career. How, based on your own personal perspective and being a vice dean for faculty over decades, how do you tell a faculty member, how do they build their lab if they're basic scientists or even if they're in a, in a, clinic, in a clinical department? Yeah, I'm doing basic science. You, you can't do it alone. You need your mentors. Make a plan about what your first year is going to look like. Perhaps it'll be to get an, uh, an R1 or a K award. Uh, but for, for those things, you need your, the advice of your mentors and other junior faculty or other um, mid-level faculty. So you're in a department, take advantage of getting to know the other faculty and building bridges with them to help you build that. Because you'll be, each department has a different culture. And so within that culture, you can learn how to get the support to build your, um, your, your lab, to recruit uh, a technician, how do you recruit people, uh, you need to uh, interact with HR, you need to recruit graduate students, you have that means you have to uh, uh, get into these graduate programs. If you're in the, in the basic sciences, you have access to the BCMB program, but other people have access to other programs as well. There's the uh, pathobiology program, which is very, very focused on more for the practical uh, and uh, applied sciences. But but they get that they get, you get great students, and um, you, you have to uh, you have to decide. Which programs are best for you? The other program that is open to all faculty is the cell and molecular medicine program. It has it has faculty from all over the school. The students that go into that program are interested in more translational science. So basic science that then takes them into uh, more of a re relevant the relevance to the clinical to um, uh, in my case. And there's also the human genetics program. So in my case, uh, I was a molecular biologist who became a virologist. And that, that molecular biology virology combination required basic science as well as learning about uh, the uh, impact of viruses in people because I was studying HIV. And so I built my lab based on human genetics CMN and BCMB. So you choose the programs that fit what you're going to do. So that's that's one aspect. The other aspect is actually uh, once you get all those people in place, how do you keep them engaged? How do you keep everyone uh, in uh, in a productive mode? And the one way I did it was. We had, I had lab meetings every week with everybody in the lab, not just the students, but the technicians and anybody else who was involved in the, in the research, like some of the lab managers. And that built a community feeling in the lab. 
that you, you have that to look forward to as the PI, but your students and the, and the technicians in your lab had it to look forward to and prepare what they had done for the week. That doesn't preclude uh, sitting down with your trainees probably weekly or bi-weekly, depending on what stage they're in, to check in with them and make sure they're doing it. So it's a good job uh, starting your lab and getting it going, uh, but don't do it alone. Use your mentors, use your colleagues in the department, and don't be shy about asking for advice. I, I, love, I love the recommendation about meeting with and talking regularly with everyone in the lab. You're saying a lot of what Doug Robinson said on the podcast a little bit ago, he talked about, he's a cell, he does all kind of cell research here at Hopkins, Douglas Robinson. And he shared two things about how to build a vision in your lab. Like what is the vision? Who are we? Right. And right, not right. only what are we going to do, but part of the product, if you will, you know, the, the money and the papers and the grant, the grant funding and the, the discovery, but right. also the product is the people. So you're saying the same thing that you have to invest in the people. And so that was part of his, you know, creating a vision of who are we as a, as a lab and getting together right. formally in meetings. So building those relationships and investing in the people. And then he right. talked about a good uh, him because actually I think you recommended him to me on how to put together SOPs standard operating procedures that yeah. you rely on as like, if you will, the, the gold book of the lab that right. when somebody right. leaves, he always does an exit interview with them. What could be better? What processes need to be improved? But mm-hmm. having these lab guidelines that everyone understands what the roles, responsibilities are, authorship expectations and guidelines and, and handling disputes early on. But if you have standard operating procedures up front and invest that time in improving them and putting them together, that you're going to save potentially a lot of problems downstream. Can we shift now to um, grant writing, Janice? I know, again, I said that I told everybody you've been a lifelong funded NIH um, grant awardee and doing research. How that is such a common uh, challenge here at Hopkins and everywhere I've been. People you know, really struggle, especially new folks, how to write a grant. What does a funded grant application look like? How do I do it? Some of us are under the mistaken impression that writing a grant application is the same as writing a paper, a manuscript, a peer-reviewed publication. And there's so many elements to it. It's um, it's complex. Or it just takes a lot of time and effort. Can you speak to maybe high level or how we're kind of level granularity one about grant writing. How to what recommendations do you have for especially new people who are really terrified by the idea of getting and writing grants? Right. Well the, I, I think there's uh there's a lot of things that we should do. One one of the things is where are you going to get that grant from? Where are you going to send that grant? So if it's the NIH, you find out who is the program officer for the area you're writing the grant. If it's a, um, if it's some other group, like a party association, you call their grant people. You find out what they are looking for and introduce yourself as a new faculty. Because from the point of view of, uh, I'm an NIH uh, person, from the point of view of the, the, the uh, 
SRA, the scientific research officers, they are judged by how successful their grantees are. So they want to know you. They want to help develop you, especially as a faculty member. Right now, there's this big push at NIH to invest in the junior faculty, but you have to do your job. Learn who you are, um, who you, your grants will be going to. Talk to them, build a relationship, and then they will know you and they can help you. Uh, I'll just tell a quick story. Uh, my, my junior faculty member who uh, I've been mentoring uh, wrote a grant and it was uh, for an RFA and she wrote a very, let's say, broad and deep and unique grant. And, and it fit many of the things that the NIH is prioritizing. It, it got a good review but not a great review. But since she, the, the FSRL SRL, uh, knew her, he called her. And, uh, she called him actually, and they talked about it. And she explained what the novel things were and how they didn't understand it. And he saw that it really fit the NIH, uh, what, what the priorities were. And so while she wasn't awarded the grant during the first round, a month after the uh, council meeting where they make the decisions, she was contacted to say, we are very interested in you as a new investigator, your exciting uh, uh, proposal, and we are going to fund. Having that relationship is very important. Yeah, I, I, when somebody first told me that, I thought, well, I'm not going to bother them. Are you kidding? They work at NIA. I, I was writing for NIA, National Institute on Aging. I said, right. they're not going to want to talk to me. I'm nobody. And it, it, so it sounds counterintuitive. So you have right. to, building relationships. It's There's nothing wrong with emailing, quick call. You don't take advantage of people's time. You have very concise bullet points, introducing yourself. They, you're helping them as well because their okay. job is to, yeah. their job job is to get, get good people to write right. That's, That's right. right. Yeah. 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 So, so, um, so that's the first step, knowing where you're going to send that grant. The second step is to think about uh, your specific aims. That is the key to a grant. Once, you once you've gotten those honed down, then you can write a good grant. Now, you can't do that alone. You just, especially as a first time, you have to put your aim down and then you have to go to your mentors, you have to go to colleagues and, and go to people who have expertise, senior people who have expertise. So that means you've got to start about two months at least, and if not three, before you're going to do, do this grant and get every piece in place. Right. Have that input get your specific aims written. And then the next part is your, your um, preliminary results. That is so important. That shows that you have invested in this area. This is the novel that you're doing in this area. Uh, and, and that to me is the second most important piece is having that, that, that preliminary. And then once you've got those aims, and the preliminary results, then the grant almost writes itself because you've got the framework for it. 
but make sure that you do it far enough in advance that you get feedback and have time for people to read it and critique it. That, that is the most important thing is it building enough time. You, it's very, very rare. You've got to be a special human being to be able to write a grant in a weekend. I mean, we all know people who have done it, but it's not their first grant by any means. Uh, you really have to build in as much time as possible because those specific games, that is the, that's the, the huge effort is the 80, 90% of your efforts on that one page, making it tight telling a, a clear story, um, walking the reader through, and you're right. Once you get that down pat, it's everybody knows what you're doing. It's very evident. Uh, you're not overcomplicating things. The rest of it will, will fall into place. And that all starts with your not keeping it a secret by sharing it with your mentors as soon as possible, as often as possible, and getting all the feedback you can. Janice, this has been wonderful. Uh, is there anything else, parting comments you'd like to share with um, new faculty, mid-career faculty, late-career faculty, um, any other bits of wisdom before we call it a day? This is really a great place because we focus on mentorship. And so uh, as a junior faculty, don't forget that you are meant to and that you should be building your mentor muscle by mentoring your students, mentoring your technicians. And uh, I think if, if you take that uh, approach, you'll enjoy what you're doing more. Because that contact and that seeing other people see is so great. That's been a great pleasure as a professional. It sounds like a lot of work. But I think what you have to do is get the pleasure out of it too. Yeah. Step back and enjoy what you're doing. Pat yourself on the back when you succeed. Enjoy the, the journey and don't be worried about getting to the next step. It will happen if you do it right. And uh, worrying about it just takes energy. I love, Janice, how you always talk about not only being passionate and doing um, what fills your heart with joy. And also how you always emphasize to faculty members that you have more power than you think, that you are empowered. So that's been a theme that I've appreciated from you over the years is that passion and the power that you are now as faculty members, you are a leader, if not by a fancy title, by your role, by what you do. So we are, we're all leaders and if we work with passion and remember that we have a lot more power than we think we do, I think we're, we're all going to um, get through this and be wildly successful. This is Dr. Janice Clements, our Mary Wallace Stanton Professor of Faculty Affairs, our Vice Dean for Faculty, Professor of Molecular and Comparative Pathobiology. Dr. Clements, thank you so much for your time today, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, 
visit facultyfactory.org.